I'm going to tell you right now, that is absolutely one of my favorite events that Bethel Church does every year. Not last year, obviously, but it's such a, a celebratory event. Do you realize that the angels in heaven rejoice and celebrate? I mean, they party, party it up when one person trusts in Jesus, when one person has salvation. So church, what do you think we're going to do next Sunday night? Yeah, <laughs> I heard someone say party. We're going to celebrate. And so I would encourage you to come Lake Street uh, Beach. It's going to be a great time together. And it's also, I love it because our whole church is together. We have every campus represented there. And uh, I'm excited. So please come. And if you've never been baptized, but you are saved, you've trusted in Jesus, you have grace through sal uh, salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, uh, by faith alone. We would encourage you to think about getting baptized next week. And if you've never trusted in Jesus, you don't yet have salvation, I am praying for you. I'm praying that today is the day of salvation. And if that's the case, we're going to baptize you next week. We're going to rejoice with you because what was once lost is now found. What, what was uh, uh, once blind can now see, right? Baptism represents life change, heart transformation in Jesus and uh, I'm on cloud nine right now because in the first service, there was a dude who got saved. Yeah. And he's going to get baptized next week. So nothing injects, you know, excitement into a preacher like that. So uh, I might get a little wild today. So here we go. Uh, I'm, I'm excited. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask that you would transform lives, that you would impact souls, that you would bring us to repentance, in other words, a changing of our mind, the way we think, so that we would be saturated with your word, seeking your presence, and delighting in your glory. What an honor it is to live for you, to follow you, to love you. May the love of Christ compel us to live for you. God, I do pray over everyone here that we would live in joy, live in excitement through the gospel of, of Jesus, live in security as Pastor Brad's prayed. And for those who don't yet know Jesus, oh God, please let today be the day of salvation. Maybe your Holy Spirit will prompt them in their heart to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. And we will rejoice. And you get all the glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, his name is Robert. Now, you guys, don't worry, you don't know him. He's not famous. You'll never find him on the cover of any magazine. He's not a social media influencer. In fact, I don't even think he has his own blog. But Robert has a significant place in my heart. I, I will never forget Robert. I met him years ago at a church we were at. And Robert walked into the church building physically trembling like visibly shaken. Something was wrong. You could see he was distraught. He was white like a ghost. Just something was off. Come to find out he had never stepped foot in a church building. He had never talked to a pastor, knew nothing about Christianity, not, knew, knew not a single verse of the Bible, knew nothing about the Bible. And he, he walks in on a weeknight. I'm in my office. A buddy of mine is out there outside the auditorium in a, you know, commons atrium like we have here. And my friend introduces himself, and the guy says, well, my name is Robert, and I don't even know why I'm here. I just feel like maybe God brought me here. I just need to talk to someone about God. My life is a mess. 
he, had, he struggled with anxiety. I mean, high anxiety. He had panic attacks all the time. He was paralyzed by fear, petrified by worry and doubt constantly. He was steeped in addictions. Uh, every week, different drugs he was doing. And every month, he was with different sexual partners, some women, some men. He was plagued by thoughts of depression and suicide, hopelessness. But worst of all, there was an emptiness in his heart. He knew there had to be more to life. There was just nothing there. He was so empty. And so my friend shares with him about Jesus. In fact, he uses the verse we're going to look at today, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God had him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Robert's like, no, that's too good to be true. He's trying to wrap his mind around grace. Are you telling me, like, I don't have to do anything? No, no demerits, no good works, no being religious, you know, religious rituals. Tell me what I have to do. No, you don't do anything. It's all in what Jesus has done in his finished work on the cross. Are you kidding me? Really? That's too good to be true. Yeah, but it is good and it is true. And Robert gave his life to Christ and got saved. <laughs> yeah, you can clap for that. Now, was his life perfect after that? No. He still struggled with temptation. He still struggled with fear. But he was a different man. He didn't struggle with sin in the same way he did when he was enslaved to it. Now he had the Holy Spirit combating sin with him. And <laughs> it was just amazing. Over the next several months, we met with him, discipled him. And I remember Robert coming up to me one day and he goes, Jared, I am so sorry. And I'm thinking like, oh no, he fell back into sin. He goes, Jared, I'm so sorry. I was at work. And I told some of my clients about Jesus, and I don't yet have my seminary degree. <laughs> and I just want to look at him like, oh, you, you sweet man. That's so, that's so innocent and sweet. But he was serious. He thought, I, don't, I, don't, I have to know everything about the Bible. I have to know everything there is to know about Jesus before I can tell people about Jesus, right? I'm like, no, you can tell them about him now. It's like, really? Yes. And he would, oh my goodness, there is nothing like a brand new believer who becomes an evangelist. I mean, they get after it. And he was. That's, it's why it's so important for us to, number one, evangelize and tell people about the gospel, but to be around new believers because it's infectious. And I love to be around Robert because that's what the gospel does. The gospel transforms. The gospel changes lives. It impacts hearts and minds. And so we're going to look at one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. In fact, you remember the game uh, Desert Island? Like if you could take any food, movie, book to a desert island, any song, what would you take? Well, if you could take any verse, one verse, you get to choose one verse. What is your desert island verse? That's tough. There are, there's a handful that I would be looking at, but this one is easily in my top three. So we're going to look at this verse, but before we do... You know, real estate agents, they say the number one real, uh, rule of real estate is what? Location, location, location. Well, when you are looking at scripture and you're studying scripture and you're looking at a verse, the number one rule is context, context, context. You have to look at the surrounding verses. You have to look at parallel passages. Scripture interprets scripture. So we're going to look at the 
context around verse 21. So we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to ask that you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might Those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him this way no longer. Therefore, if if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ, reconciled us to himself. And he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and, not entr- and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are, what church? Ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, that is, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. Chapter 6, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. You guys can be seated. Look back at verse 14. Let's look at the context. Now Paul says in verse 14 that the love of Christ controls us. That is, it compels us. When you are compelled to do something, you joyfully do it. You eagerly do it because the the reward, the prize, is far greater than the enormity or the difficulty of the task at hand. And Paul says in Romans 1 that we were haters of God. We hated God. But now we love Jesus because we are loved by Jesus. And if you don't live for Jesus... Maybe it's because you don't know the love of Jesus. This is why we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. We say that all the time. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. That, that doesn't mean you stand in front of a mirror and, you know, preach the gospel. I mean, you can, I guess. That's weird. But it means remind yourself of the gospel constantly. I, I do this daily. Like, God, give me reminders of your grace. Give me reminders of your gospel, your righteousness, this gift of grace. And verse 21 is a powerful verse for that. In fact, I want to challenge all of us, every single one of us, let's memorize this verse together, verse 21, this week. I I said in the first service, for those who memorize this verse and next week, if you recite it to me, I would buy you a cup of coffee. And then I realized, wait a minute, I don't have that much money. (laughs) Like, I don't have that much cash. Plus, you know, when you memorize God's word, There is an infinite fruit-bearing worth. It's incentive in and of itself. But if you really want a cup of coffee, just come talk to me and we'll work something out. (laughs) Then we get down to verse 17. And this, in and of itself, could easily be a bottom line of the Bible. That's our series this summer, Bottom Lines of the Bible. This is just a standout verse. If anyone is in Christ, that means their faith And their very identity is completely enveloped in Jesus. It's wrapped up in who Jesus is and what he's done. They're in union with Christ through the Holy Spirit. If anyone's in Christ, that person is a new creation. 
Behold, the old has gone, the new has come. And if I had some people excited about the gospel, they would probably say, Amen. Amen. Christians are not rehabilitated. We are not re-educated. We are recreated. We are born again. I don't know if you've ever watched uh, Animal Planet or Discovery Channel. They always have the narrator with a good British accent, right? <laughs> Here you find the caterpillar. Oh, look at the caterpillar on the leaf, and he's eating the leaf as the, this disgusting little worm spins a web of silk around. Okay, I'm going to stop that. You know, he spins a cocoon around himself, a chrysalis. Do you realize in the process of metamorphosis that this caterpillar genetically breaks down? Like he, he literally, he or she, decomposes and then the genetic material recomposes into new DNA. And when you are saved in Jesus, that old you, that old man, that old woman is gone, is dead. You've been metamorphosized. I don't think that's a word, but let's go with it. The old is gone, the new has come. You have new spiritual DNA. So what you used to value, you don't value anymore. What you used to love, you don't love anymore. Jesus has given you new hopes, new dreams, new aspirations, new values, new loves, new worth in him. That is good news. You are a new person in Christ. The old you ain't you anymore. So the addictions, the fears, the lust, the greed, the jealousy, that's the old you. And that old you is not you anymore. That old person has died. Jesus has crucified him or her on the cross. Praise God. I mean, isn't this what baptism so profoundly and symbolically represents? That's why we get excited about what happens next week. And then we get to verses 18 through 20, and we have something called the message of reconciliation. Now, reconciliation insinuates that there was a prior separation, a ruptured relationship, animosity where there should have been intimacy. Creation once walked with the creator, but does so no longer. And yet God says, nah, not on my watch, not today, Satan. And he reconciles us to himself through Christ. And then he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. The reconciled become the reconcilers. We are ambassadors for Christ, of Christ. God is making his appeal through us to a broken, dying, lost world. Centuries ago, 2,000 years ago, in, in Jesus' day, in the Roman Empire, the emperor would send out emissaries, ambassadors on behalf of the emperor and these, these ambassadors would go out to unconquered lands, to frontier lands, and they would go to the people, they would go to these cities and say, please, be reconciled to the Roman Empire. Don't stand your ground. Give up. Surrender. Join us, lest there be war and bloodshed. And if they surrendered, then they were given their lives. They were spared their lives. But if not... They faced the wrath of the Roman army. And as ambassadors of Christ, listen, God's wrath, make no mistake, he is patient, he is gracious, he is merciful, but eventually his wrath, his just almighty wrath is coming against those who do not follow him by faith in Jesus. And so therefore, on Christ's behalf, we plead with others, we beg others, we implore others, please be reconciled to God through Christ. David Garland says, 
God did not deputize us to make people feel good about themselves and their relationship with God, to God, but to affect a real peace. This task means that we must always point to something beyond ourselves, to what God has done in Christ, not what we are doing for Christ. So the Lord has entrusted us with this precious message of reconciliation. Now, what is that message? It's verse 21. God had him, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the hinge point of this whole passage. How are we made new? Verse 21. How are we reconciled to the Father? Verse 21. How do we receive the grace of God not in vain? Verse 21. What is our message of reconciliation to others? What do you think, church? Verse 21. How does God help us in a day of salvation? Verse 21. That's it. Now, in the Greek, this is structured, it's structured like this, a little differently. It's structured, the one who did not know sin for our sake was made to be sin so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. So we're going to look at it in this structure with this flow in five parts. First, him who knew no sin. Who's this talking about, church? Sunday school answer. Come on now. Jesus. To know sin is to be personally acquainted with sin because you regularly partake in sin. Jesus has never for one moment known sin. Oh, he knows all about sin, but he's never known sin. Never for one second did he participate in sin. Did he gain any kind of experiential familiarity with it? Never. He is sinless. He's perfect. And we see that in these passages, his holiness. John 8, 46, no one could accuse him of sin. Hebrews 4, 15, he was tempted in every respect as we are and yet without sin. See, we are tempted and we sin. We give in to sin. We crumble under sin. We buckle under sin, but not so with Jesus. He was tempted in every way, in every respect as we are, and yet he stood his ground. Hebrews 7.26, Jesus is a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. 1 Peter 1.19, he is spotless lamb without blemish. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 1.5, he is light and in him is no darkness at all. Jesus is as perfect and absent of sin as light is bright and absent of darkness. And then 1 John 3.5, in him there is no sin. Now for you and me, and for everybody, for the billions of people who have walked this earth, who have ever breathed a breath of life in God's existence, for every single person, not a single one of us, for one second, have ever loved God perfectly with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not for one second. But Jesus never stopped loving the Father perfectly with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not for one second. He is him who knew no sin. Not a speck of indecency. Not a shred of depravity. Not an iota of disobedience. He is the holy, spotless, without blemish, blameless, pure, spotless Lamb of God. He is perfect. He is him who knew no sin, and him who knew no sin became sin. How does God see our sin? Show of hands, how many of you have ever seen The Princess Bride? Amazing movie. One of my wife's 
all-time favorite movies. There's a scene, if you remember, where Princess Buttercup is having a nightmare, and this old woman, this old hag, am I allowed to say hag? Too late, I already said it. <laughs> this old woman comes up to her in this dream and says, you know, queen of refuse, queen of filth, muck, refuse, rubbish, filth, slime, muck, putrescence. I don't know why, but this is how God sees our sin. That's how I think of it. It's disgusting to God. It's putrid. It's abhorrent. It's abominable. It's putrescent because it is a direct, egregious affront to his holy and glorious splendor. And sin is us telling God, yeah, you're not enough for me. And so in our sin, we were hostile enemies to God, rebellious mutineers. Sin is a clenched fist in the face of God. Our sin then rightfully offends God. He detests it because it grieves him, it alienates us from him, it separates us from him. That's why God cannot just let bygones be bygones. God cannot ignore it. He cannot simply gloss over it. He's a God of justice, perfect justice and holiness. Sin has to be dealt with because it's rebellion against him. But notice, it does not say that Jesus became a sinner on the cross. He didn't become sinful. It says he became sin. So the sinless Messiah so completely identified with us in our sin that Paul could say that he became sin. He never had any personal experience with sin, but he identified with our sin in union with us. So though pure and holy, he assumed our identity on the cross as vile, wicked people. He is the perfect, spotless, undefiled lamb, but on the cross... He became the essence of our every sin. He embodied the essence of sin. Your sin, my sin, our sin. In Leviticus, Leviticus 16, talks about this one day called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, the great high priest, one person, one time a year, could enter into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was, but only by the blood of animals, because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, the Bible says. And so they would make sacrifices, because God is a God of perfection. He's also a God of life. He's the author of life. So to reject God is to choose death. Death. We choose death. And so someone or something has to pay the penalty, the price of death. And so they would sacrifice animals. And he would take two goats. They'd have two goats come before him. And the first goat they would slaughter, they would sacrifice to atone for the guilt of the sins of the people. And then the other goat would be called, anyone know? A scapegoat. And the scapegoat, the high priest would put his hand upon its head. And you would just start confessing out loud all the sins of the people, representing transferring all the sins of the people upon this goat. And then they would send the goat out into the wilderness. So that goat bore the sins of the people as it was cast out from them into the wilderness outside the camp. Now think about the worst sins you have ever committed. 
The worst thing you've ever done, said, thought. Think about the worst sins you've ever committed. Jesus became that. Jesus took on that on the cross. He absorbed your sin on the cross to the point that he could be identified as the one who committed them. Now, if God despises sin, and he does, and if he rightly, justly pours out his wrath upon sin, which he does and will, then it makes sense. Do you see why Jesus faced such agony in the Garden of Gethsemane as he drops to his knees the night before he's going to die, bowing his head to the ground, praying, Father, if it be your will, please let this cup of wrath pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As great sweat drops of blood poured from his brow, pouring from his pores. Is it any wonder then that on the cross, as Jesus is dying, crucified, that he cried out that great awful cry of dereliction, Elohi, Elohi, lama sabbatani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As all creation turned dark, when the Father poured out his almighty wrath upon the Son, Jesus absorbing that on our behalf, is it any wonder that Jesus was facing grief? The Father treated the Son as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe in him, though he had in fact committed no sin. And what's even more incredible, what's even more amazing, is that he did that for you, for me, for us. Look at this. It says, he who knew no sin became sin for us, for our sake. Look back at verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, compels us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. One for all and all for one. The one died for all those who had trusted in him, so that all those who trust in him would live for the one. And you look at this text and it says that for their sake, for our sake, he died and was raised for our sake. You remember the old uh, 90s praise song, 90s worship song, Above All? I think it was by Michael W. Smith. You got to love Michael Dub. <laughs> the lyrics are, are beautiful. They sound sweet, very sentimental. It goes like this, crucified, laid behind a stone. You live to die, rejected and alone, like a rose trampled on the ground. You took the fall and thought of me above all. Now, those lyrics sound sweet and sentimental and beautiful, and it's mostly true. Those lyrics are mostly true if you removed those last few words, because did Jesus, when he was going to the cross, think about us above all? Actually, no. Listen to me. Jesus was thinking about the glory of the Father. The glory of the Father was and is and always has been and always will be his rightful primary first concern and motive. So he went to the cross to please the Father. He went to the cross to obey the Father, to follow his will, to glorify the Father. That is what drove Jesus to the cross above all. But make no mistake, don't neglect the fact that Jesus still died for you. We were not in his periphery. 
while he went to the cross, we were squarely in his sights as he walked the Via Dolorosa, as he walked the path carrying his cross, bearing our burden with his eyes set toward Golgotha, that place of the skull, that place of death where death thought it had defeated the author of life. He takes the cross, dies on the cross for us. Hallelujah, come on. Oh, he had a white hot zeal for the glory of the Father and a passion, you might say a passion of the Christ to redeem and reconcile all his people to the Father, which then again brings God glory. It's cyclical. So let's look at passages that talk about Jesus dying for you. John 10, 15, I lay down my life for my sheep, Jesus says. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 2 Peter 3, 18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. See, this is more than mere representation. Any Bears fans in here? Come on. Don't be scared. Don't be, don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Raise, raise those hands. I, like, I love the Broncos. That's my number one team. But the Bears are my second favorite team. I, hope springs eternal in the offseason, right? Here's the thing. When the Bears win, if the Bears win, <laughs> they represent all Bears nation. They represent all of Chicagoland, all of those fans who cheer them on, all the Bears fans who buy their merchandise, who go to their games, who watch their games religiously every single week, who stand and cheer and wear their jerseys. They represent all the fans of the Bears. And so their victory belongs to the people because they were playing as their representatives. And, and then, you know, when the Bears win, you talk to someone who's just like a Bears fanatic, like, oh, the Bears, the Bears, we won. We won? Really? Because I thought you were sitting on your couch eating cheese curls. <laughs> I didn't see you on the field. What do you mean we won? But we can say that because the Bears represent us as fans. They are representative of us, and so they share their victory with us. Now, this verse, that is true. Jesus is victorious for us. He represents humanity. But this verse is far more than representing humanity. Jesus replaced humanity for our sake, in our place, in our stead, on our behalf. This is the substitution of substitutionary atonement. That's why centuries ago, Martin Luther called this verse the glorious exchange. I love that. The glorious exchange. What is ours became Christ's, and what is Christ's becomes ours. Him who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, we don't simply become righteous. We become the righteousness of God. We become the essence of the righteousness of Jesus. You guys have heard the word forensic, right? Like forensic justice. Usually when people think of forensic, what do they think about? CSI. You know you're thinking CSI. I never really got into CSI, but I know enough about it. You have like a team of forensic experts who investigate a crime scene, 
Like in CSI Miami, it starts the same episodes the same way every time. You have that guy with red hair, he's looking at uh, the crime scene. Uh-huh. Looks at the dead body, looks at the evidence. He stands up and gives that pensive look. Then he gives a cheesy one-liner. Well, Frank, I guess today it's a table for one. The theme song goes, right? It's so cheesy. So what does forensic actually mean? Well, forensic means according to the law. So the forensic team, they're looking at the crime scene. They're examining all the evidence to see if they can find evidence that either proves someone innocent or proves someone guilty according to the law, in the court of law. And we, according to this verse, have forensic righteousness applied to us. We have righteousness according to the law. Now, no one would look at our lives and, and examine the evidence forensically and go, oh, those people are perfect. They're without sin. Oh, they're so amazing. Oh, they've never done anything. No one would ever say that if they actually, they would be terrible forensic investigators. Because you look at our lives and we are so jacked up. We're so messed up. Our life is a mess, just like Robert in that story earlier. All of us all have sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so how do we have forensic righteousness applied to us? It's through Jesus, we are legally declared righteous because of Jesus. It's as if when God sees us, he sees someone who lived according to the law, forensically, perfectly, never committing sin, perfectly righteous. We, by faith, you know, you know by faith in Jesus, you know what, you know what God sees, God the Father, when, he's, when he sees you as you stand before him one day? before the judgment seat, before his throne. You know what he sees? He, he does not see the garbage of our life. He doesn't see trash. If you've trusted in Jesus, he doesn't see the infinite spiritual debt, not the disgusting depravity, not every grotesque and wicked thought, deed, word, and action, not everything we've done, thought, and said. He sees his perfect son. He sees perfect righteousness. He sees Jesus, holy, pure, unstained, without blemish, spotless, blameless Lamb of God. That's what he sees. Because we're covered by the blood of Jesus. Faith is what applies that to us. And by faith in what Jesus has done, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. No longer wearing the sin-stained garments that we used to wear. Jesus wore those on the cross. Jesus wore our sin as he died on the cross for us. So God treats us as he would treat his perfect, holy son. You see why I get excited about this verse. Should we not get passionate? I mean, we go to Bears games and we're, you know... Going nuts, people are painting letters on their chest, which never makes any sense to me when it's 20 below. They go to, we go to concerts, and we're celebrating, we're jumping up and down. We go to weddings, and we're dancing. And we come to church, and we hear passages like this, or we, we worship and do praise songs, and we pray, and it's golf clap. Oh, this is nice. Where's the passion? Where's the excitement? Man, I, Pastor Dustin, I literally earlier, Dustin, I like, when we were worshiping, I, I wanted to dance like David danced. <laughs> I mean, I'd keep my clothes on, but <laughs> I, 
I just wanted, like my heart was about to leap out of my chest as I'm thinking about this. This is a treasure trove of truth. What a precious jewel this is to the church of Jesus. Should we not get more excited, church? See, this beautiful doctrine is called imputation. It's a fancy word. To impute something to someone means to attribute it to them, to ascribe to them, or maybe you credit it to the, their account. So if I, if I impute $100 to your account, I am crediting that to you. That's now yours. There's a transfer that takes place. And our sin was imputed to Jesus, and his righteousness was imputed to us. Now, some religions teach infusion, this doctrine of infusion. Some Christian denominations even teach this, that now, this is very different than imputation. Infusion says that the ungodly is merely infused with grace that increases their holiness over time, gradually making them more and more righteous. So they believe that you're infused with grace and there's a movement toward being just, a movement toward being righteous. And in that view, justification and sanctification, so justification is when we are declared right and just before God. We're, like, we're good with God. We're reconciled to him. That's justification. Sanctification is we are being made more and more like Jesus. We're being sanctified, meaning more holy, more set apart throughout our lives. It's a lifelong process. Now, in this view of infusion, justification and sanctification are the same process. Here's the problem. At what point are we justified, if that's true? Yeah. Like, how many faith credits or righteous credits or grace points do I need? How much grace do we need to reach holiness? You know, uh, think of the difference between fruit juice and fruit-infused water. You know, if you've ever had sparkling water with like a splash of lemon, just a little, you know, little breath of lemon. Like LaCroix. Anyone like, don't raise your hand. LaCroix is terrible. It's, yes. Kim, it is. It's so bad. Sorry to call you out. It, it's like, LaCroix tastes like a hint of a hint of lime. LaCroix tastes like strawberry, but on low battery. LaCroix tastes like fruit juice would to a ghost. <laughs> One more. LaCroix tastes like the only soft drink in a dystopian future where emotions are banished. <laughs> It's just bad. I'm sorry, but it is. Because it's, it's, it's sparkling water, but with a little infusion of fruit, fruit flavoring. It's not fruit juice. Now, you could infuse it with more fruit flavoring over time, and, you know, you get more flavor, more citrus, more, and believe me, LaCroix would need a whole lot of that. <laughs> but at no point would, does it become fruit juice. No, at no point does someone go, oh, this is sparkling orange juice. No. It can't become fruit juice. Now, are we made increasingly more like Jesus over our lifetime? Yes, of course. That is sanctification. But justification is not the same as sanctification. Justification brings about sanctification. Justification is not a process. It is an instantaneous position. When you trust in Jesus, you are immediately declared righteous. 
So God credits to me, to you, to us, by faith, the perfect uh, satisfaction and righteousness and holiness of Christ. It's as if I've never sinned or ever been a sinner. It's as if I'd been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient. Him who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The last two words are important. They're big words. What does it say? In him. Don't miss those two words. In him. Church family, there's a fork in the road. We've been going down, you've been going down a path that you have treaded your whole life. And this path is your sin and self-righteousness. You try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You try to live well. You try to do good things. Call yourself a Christian. Be religious. Be nice. Do good things. Hope that your good outweighs your bad. And you're just continuing down that path. But if you look all the way down the path to the very end, it always has the same ending. It has the same ultimate destination, which is death and destruction, eternal separation from God. That's where it's headed. Or you can take the path less trodden. You could take the divergent road. And on that road, there's a sign that says one way. One way. The only way. Do we want to be righteous? You want to be set free from the consequences of sin? You want to be made new? You want to be reconciled with God the Father? There's the way. That's the way. One way. The only way. He's the way. He's the conduit to righteousness of God, to life eternal in the glory of the Father. It is in Jesus. It's only in Jesus. It's by means of Jesus. And all this is possible, but only in him. This is why Paul says in Colossians 1, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So you want to be reconciled to God through the body of death, Jesus? It's in him. You want to be holy? It's in him. You want to be blameless? It's in him. You want to be above reproach? It's in him. In union with Christ, his death and life become our death and life. His blessings become our blessings. His righteousness becomes our righteousness, and our sin becomes his sin. That is the heart of the gospel. So when God looks at the cross, he sees you. And when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. Bottom line, sinless Jesus became sin so that unrighteous us would become righteous. You know, we spend the currency of our worship on all kinds of things, worthless things. Worship is a lifestyle of attributing worth to someone or something. It's whatever we give the most worth to. And we spend the currency of our worship on all kinds of worthless things that have no bearing in this lifetime and certainly not for the eternal next. And these things are bankrupting us. Sin satisfies for a bit until it bankrupts you and leaves you in infinite spiritual debt. Oh, sin has short-term gain, very short-term marginal profit. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it, but then it is followed by infinite loss. You know, I think of 
Think of this. Imagine that you are taking out your trash. You're, you're going to the end of the driveway and you open up the lid to the dumpster. You're about to put this bag of trash in. And, you know, in the Bryant household, we have things in our trash like soiled pull-ups, <laughs> orange peels, banana peels, paper towels that have been used to soak up some really disgusting spills and messes. There's nothing glorious about it. I mean, it, it stinks. It's gross. It's disgusting. There, I promise you, there is nothing of value in it. But imagine that you're about to throw away the trash, and then here comes Jeff Bezos, richest man in the entire world with a net worth of $194 billion, owner of Amazon, and here he comes up, rolls down his window, <laughs> and he says, hey, what you got there? Oh, I'm just taking out my trash. Oh, all right, I'll take it. Come on, bring it over here. What? No, it, it's just trash. There's like, there's nothing of value in it. Yeah, I, I'll take it. No, I, I'm telling you, it's just garbage. There, there, I, there is, believe me, you can open it. You can look in there if you want, but it's garbage. It's trash. It has no value. Yeah, I want it. Well, you know what? I don't want it, but you know what? I'll take it. And he takes it from us. And then he says, all right, pulls out his checkbook. How much do I owe you? Like two, three billion dollars? You know what? I'm just going to give you the whole thing. $194 billion. <whistles> Hands you the check. What do you do in that moment? I'll tell you what I would do. <laughs> what? <laughs> really? That's amazing. Who does that? Who, first of all, takes the trash? That, I guess, yeah, you could take out my trash for me. But then who pays me their net worth of 100, almost $200 billion? That is some crazy loco stuff. That almost seems scandalous. And Jesus exchanges the trash that is my life, the garbage, my lifetime of sinful, rebellious choices where I deny him and elevate self. And he takes all that disgusting nastiness, all of its repercussions, namely the almighty, just, holy wrath of God, and he takes it upon himself. Yes. See, debts don't just magically vanish. Someone has to absorb that cost. And Jesus absorbed the cost. But as if that wasn't enough, and trust me, that's enough to spare us from hell. That in and of itself is a gift of mercy. But as if that wasn't enough, he flips it and he gives us his infinite riches of righteousness so that we get to spend eternity with him forever in heaven. He took our hell and he gives us his heaven from infinite debt to infinite riches in him. Is it any wonder then that Paul says the love of Christ compels us? Now, if you are a follower of Christ, this should compel you. This treasure trove of truth should compel you. It should motivate you. It should drive you to live for him. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. But if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you've never trusted in him, you've never said, Jesus, I need you to take the trash of my life, and I want your holiness, I want your righteousness, I can't do anything on my own, I, I trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, I trust in the empty tomb that conquers sin and death and Satan, I trust in you, I call out to you. If you've never done that, what are you waiting for? 
Perhaps for you, today is the day of salvation, and you will get saved. And guess what? Next week, we will celebrate you, celebrate Jesus with you as we baptize you.